Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. My parents just, as wonderful people as they were, they just couldn't protect me and they weren't as savvy to the ways of the world. So from a very young age, I had to develop this thick skin and and deal with adversity. And we all deal with different adversities. I think my advice to your listeners is we're capable of so much more um, in terms of being able to endure things. So for me, I built adversity through that and it sort of allowed me to be more of an individual, uh, whereas a Muslim society is very collective. And then coming here, once again, there was a lot of adversity. You had to struggle through and find your way out of that adversity one day at a time. So I think we we need to be open to new cultures and new ways of thinking uh, and not and be willing to learn from the new cultures. That's what happened to me. It was like, okay, I'm going to remain open to this new way of thinking or this new culture. And I think transformation starts by being open to learning those new things. And I would say that in my case, you know, that was very important to be willing to adjust to the culture. A lot of times people just don't adjust or they'll come from another country to the United States and they'll stay uh, in that same uh, cocoon-like environment right i mean same store same food same clothing and and i think they need to bring that diversity and bring that differentness to the surroundings instead of keeping it to themselves and for me i think that was very important lesson to bring my whole self to work or to my relationships yeah how you day how you day that was the voice of Ali Master. Now, Ali's story is pretty incredible. This is an immigrant who came from Pakistan who had an incredible amount of self-exploration that he needed to go through in order to become the person that he became today. And we talk about his journey through immigration, his journey to entrepreneurship, his journey to love uh, and identity. I think it's very relevant in today's time. And it's always cool to see someone who's done it and is now passing it on to his, his generation of kids. I really hope that you all can find yourself in stories. I really hope that you all can understand the importance of being open-minded and being able to expand your worldviews. Really, really, I want you to take those points in. 
make sure you check out his book. His book is pretty incredible. He's very vulnerable in his book, and you're going to see as well in the interview. So enjoy the episode. Check it out. Love you all. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's guest is Ali Master, who is a serial entrepreneur and EY partner. I said entrepreneur, and we're going to discuss what that means. He's an author. He's a speaker. He's a husband. He's a dad. He's an elder. He describes himself as a professional cricketer wannabe <laughs> and always hopeful Dallas Cowboys fan. I am really sorry. But um, <laughs> but what we're going to be talking about is his amazing new book and, and his background of, you know, of, of being an immigrant and how he overcame challenges to thrive uh, in order to get the American dream. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Tayo. Thanks for hosting me. Well, the, the pleasure is mine. Right off the bat, I do uh, identify with you when you when you call yourself an immigrant because you, I've always been an international student and someone on a visa. I have always wondered about the adjusting period. You know, what were those days like when you were in between different cultures and you were trying to figure out how to express yourself in a different land? What, what was the what was that like? Very hard and challenging. So. Um, this is for your audience's benefit. We're talking about the mid-80s here. Uh, so I've been in the States for about 33 years now. And yeah, coming, I grew up in Pakistan and and it was the farthest I'd ever traveled may have been like India. And that culture is not hugely different from my culture in Karachi, Pakistan. And, and I came from a family where my dad was working for an affiliate of GE. So we had a lot of comforts. You know, we had like a chauffeur and a gardener and a cook and a maid and a big house. And the company was paying for all that. And to go from that world and come into New York and then to Texas overnight, your whole life changes with a plane flight. And then you're sweeping floors at a McDonald's uh, just a few short weeks later. It was very different. You were in a culture shock economically. You were in a culture shock just in terms of going from a majority community to suddenly you're diverse and uh, you look different than everybody and your language is different. I knew English, but I didn't know Texan. So it was a big, huge adjustment I had to go through. I can imagine. And, you know, for many people listening, a lot of times when people come to America, you know, you can either the three ways to become American is that so you get a job, you get married, or I guess, you, you, you know, you have this amazing idea that gets that sponsors you or something. But right. a lot. Yeah. But a lot of students do end up coming to America. And, and you were it sounds like we're an international student. Uh, and that first experience, I can say firsthand, which is always what I've always been, is, is definitely not what you always expect, because you have a vision of America based on the movies you see on TV or the shows you yes. watch. But, yes. when, <laughs> but when you come to America, you realize that it's so much bigger than what you see. You might see a, like a Hollywood version. You might see a New York. You might see a Chicago. But you wouldn't get into the weeds of what the South is or what the Northeast is and the intercultures of that. So you said you didn't speak Texan. I picked up on that. Explain, yeah. How, yeah, explain how Texas is different from the rest of the United States. <laughs> well, that, it's funny you would ask that. First of all, you're absolutely right. In some ways, uh, the stereotypes that I had of America and the vision that I had, which was all portrayed and 
sort of structured for me through TV shows, as you alluded. You had in those days, you know, I'm aging myself, but you had shows like Dallas and Mary Tyler Moore and Chips and Dynasty and these night soaps. And my first semester, I come to University of Texas and they run out of space in the men's dorm. So the first semester, me and nine other guys are in the girls' dorm. Okay. So that was sort of like the movies. And I was like, hey, this is what it's like. And that's how <laughs> I, and it was quite the semester, as you can imagine. Right. Um, and so some way it was very much like, yeah, this is how it is. Uh, but on the other ways, how people treat you, um, it is different. So, but yeah, Texan, to just tell you a funny story, uh, one of the things you quickly discover is there's a lot of rules in America and there's a structure to things and you need to have like an ID for everything. You can't do anything without an ID when you get here. Yeah. And I had my passport and stuff, but you, that's different. Everybody expects like a driver's license. So I go into this and this is in the beyond the golden door of the book. I go to take this driver's license test and you had to adjust. First of all, you drive on the right side of the road, right? And in most of the Southeast Asia and even Europe, you're driving on the left side of the road. So you had to adjust, first of all, not to just get out of your apartment complex and take an immediate left, which I did a few times and almost got killed. Um, so you're, you're there and this big old Texan, Texas Ranger shows up with this hat he literally had the hat just like the movies and uh and then we get in the car he's taking my driving exam and when you've driven in india and pakistan this is nothing i mean driving in america is so easy everything everybody's in their lanes and nobody's <laughs> well i'm from nigeria so it's very late you know. yeah but then he takes me through into the reverse part and i'm reversing back my car thinking I got this thing and he goes, that's good. And I'm like, he likes it. And so I keep driving it and he looks at me funny and he goes, that's good, son. And I'm like, when is he going to tell me to stop? And then he, he starts raising his voice because we're like about to go into a main highway, still reversing. And he pulls the hand grip, handbrake saying, I told you to, that's good. I'm like, I know, I thought you liked it. He goes, no, I meant stop. <laughs> you didn't get the far that that's good it's okay oh wow <laughs> people do speak different here you know and that was an adjustment uh okay okay so speaking of adjustments you you then obviously you settled in you you found a way to to you know uh build a home there in texas what was the transition like from working in at mcdonald's to becoming managing partner at one of the big six accounting firms yeah. So first of all, I went through a lot of challenges because even in the beginning and because uh, I had never been trained, uh, as I was saying, I had been raised with a silver spoon in my mouth. And my dad, I didn't realize he traded in his pension, his whole life pension for one year's worth of tuition in the in the University of Texas. So oh, I wow. didn't realize that. Yeah, I didn't realize the company was paying for the car and the country club membership and all that. So we weren't as rich as I thought. So then he tells me, and I don't know how Nigerian parents are, but Pakistani parents are super private. They don't tell you their finances, any of that. You're, you just sort of, it's a need to know basis. So I had to go get a job at McDonald's. And in the beginning, I, I ran into the wrong crowd 
and missed work and was struggling in college. So I literally, it was a, it was a very challenging time for me. And then I made a lot of mistakes. So lost my job, found another job at McDonald's. And I finally met um, this girl and her name was Judy. And she was probably the first person I met who was like making good grades and working hard, <laughs> kind of a clean cut person. And you started to, it was like an about turn in my life. And eventually we got married and she was like, you really need to get a real job. No more polyester pants and no more getting up at three in the morning to open the store, close the store. Because I had worked my way to a manager. Um, and during that time, even at McDonald's, I saw a path forward because in countries like Pakistan, and I'm, I think that it may be true of Nigeria, you tell me, people that work in restaurants, you know, they don't, uh, they don't ever turn out to be a CEO of that company someday. Like at McDonald's, uh, Fred Turner, who was a CEO, started at ground level. So you, you had a path to go from A to B and right. work to be a manager, right? And then work right. to be a store manager and then own stores. So that was very encouraging to me. Uh, but eventually, I loved customer service, so I left McDonald's, and I was taking accounting courses at University of Texas and graduating soon as a degree in accounting, and I got a customer service job at a boutique firm in Dallas that really focused on very niche areas of tax, and I sort of got enamored by technology and how you can take a single piece of the tax code and apply technology to it. So I loved it so much. I then went and started my own company, uh, which failed miserably because you're 23 and you're trying to start your own business. So I got into this thing you called that you alluded to earlier called intrapreneurship. How do you start a business inside another business? And I did that for a local CPA firm in Dallas. And I met my first sponsor which, as you know, is so important in, in, in when you talk about inclusion and diversity to have sponsors. So I had my first sponsor in this guy named Ron, and I worked for him, and that started to become successful. And we had a few Ernst & Young clients. So instead of doing the traditional path where you're doing audit or tax, I was already starting businesses at a young age, and we had a few Ernst & Young clients, and eventually that led to a referral to Ernst & Young. And I got, got a job at EY, and we're talking now in the 90s. And I tried to convince them that, hey, let me start some new businesses for you. And in those days, I found more sponsors who were willing to take the risk on me. And that led to just great success. So a lot of hard work, but eventually that I made partner eight years later. So for, so you had EY as a client before you started working for them? No, I had some EY clients as my clients. Ah. So, uh, so some of these niche uh, areas of tax that I was focused on, Ernst & Young didn't really do as much in those areas. So every once in a while, they would send us a referral of a client or two. And so I knew them through that. And eventually my mentor uh, or my sponsor, Ron, said, you know, you really need to work for a big four firm. At that time, it was big six. Today, it's only four. Yeah, big four. Uh, and so that's how it opened the door. Ah, No, I love this. I love this. So the reason why I love this is, is we're hearing that 
you did several things and you picked yourself back up. So I want to dive deeper. You started a business that failed miserably. You um, started to really un understand what entrepreneurship is. You got sponsorship. Someone believed in you. Now, these are all things that many people in my generation, the millennial generation and and, uh, you know, and above are, are, or younger rather are thinking about it. You know, how can you bounce back from a failure? And what, what are things you can work on within yourself to attract mentorship that can lead to sponsorship? How can you be able to look for opportunities? What would you say to, you know, someone that, that is in that phase in their, in their lives? Sure. So I would just draw on my own stories and experiences, you know, uh, that was not, nothing extraordinary about my brilliance or intelligence as much as it was perseverance and putting up with adversity. And I had to stylistically adjust. And that was something I started to learn. So first of all, I had an idea and, but I didn't have credibility. So I had good business ideas, but I did not have experience and credibility when I started my own firm. So it failed because I did not have relationships and I started to realize how crucial relationships are with companies and and how important credibility is and how it can transfer from one mentor sponsor to me. And so when I so I my door closed in my business but a window opened and so my advice first of all would be hey just because your idea didn't work doesn't mean it's a bad idea. You may want to find a different channel or path to take that idea to market. In my case, I just fortunately met this CPA who was very experienced, and he became my sponsor in terms of taking some risks on me. And then I started to work with him, and he would take me to these lunch meetings and go, hey, we're going to go sell. And I'm like, okay, so I'm ready with my technical materials and we would go to lunch, right? And yeah. and all he would talk about in the first 30 to 40 minutes of this one hour lunch is baseball and relationships. And he would he loved baseball and he had a lot of clients who would just talk about the Baltimore Oreos or whatever. <laughs> and I would keep wondering, when is he going to talk about the business stuff? And he would just be patient. And then eventually his client would say, okay, well, what do you want to talk about? And then he would position me going, Ali here has great ideas to save you tax dollars. Ali, go ahead. And and then I would do my spiel. And at the end of that lunch, he would be like, okay, send me a contract. And I'd be like, wow, I need to learn about baseball. Uh, and what I was learning was it's about getting credibility through others and building relationships and learning about American culture, American sports, American way of doing things. And if you're a person who is an immigrant or someone, you want to learn that. It's about relationships. And then you have to deliver. So now I had these contracts, right? And that's the other important lesson we should talk about is what is the responsibility of a protege? I had to deliver over deliver because Ron's credibility was on the line. He had done the introductions for me. And so I would tell your audience, you know, once you find these relationships, it's your job as a protege to over deliver and make people look good. Because uh, if, if you don't, if you don't manage those expectations, then it's hard to get that sponsorship.
Yeah. Wow. And that's really good advice too, because it, it, you were talking about credibility. And I, I think for people that maybe not, or are not a citizen of a country or too young or whatever, you know, whatever any label someone has, uh, has ascribed to you, the thing that you always have to work on is how you can stand out, right? So the idea of going above and beyond uh, is something that you shouldn't um, take for granted. But I love the tenacity aspect, though, the, the perseverance point that you brought up, because there is no doubt that you're going to fail. And I'm going through your book, there are many failures that I saw. We're talking right. about flunking out of college, right? Yes. Being, being unemployed. And then uh, something that's really relevant today was, you know, being hospitalized after a failed suicide attempt. Now, we're in a time where depression and, and mental health, I still don't feel like is being given the, the attention it needs to be. But we're also seeing a rise in suicides and things like that. What, what was your experience like in terms of that? And, and how can you know, we make sure we take better care of our mental state? Well, thank you for asking that. And yeah, I think the book talks about the probably the lowest point right. of my life. Uh, in my case, I would, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist here, but in my case, it was driven by having a lot of dysfunctional relationships. One in particular, that was a girlfriend that just was very difficult because she was codependent and I'd never dated before uh, coming from an arranged marriage culture. And so it was a, uh, the my attempt was more sort of, call it a act of passion, if you will, to get out of that situation somehow. And thankfully it didn't work. So I think for me, um, the whole suicide attempt was a more of a act of passion to sort of try to get out of this very difficult relationship that I just didn't, I felt like my back was to the wall. Uh, But I think to your Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Point. Tell you about... So in my... At my age, of course, I got parents and I have, mil- I have, I have kids, uh, millennials included. And sometimes, you know, you, you want to stay close to them because, uh, yeah, you, we, we don't focus enough on some of the things that, you know, people all ages can, can do. But, you know, especially when relationships can become explosive and people can feel trapped, that can certainly even cause that. So it's not just depression alone. And I think we need to definitely have uh, more focus on those, more education for people and, and more counseling to figure out, you know, how do you exit 
difficult situations because I had no no way of knowing how to get out of that situation. Oh, then how did you get out of it? So you, it did you just because you said you had no way to get out of it? Something must have happened where. Yeah. You, yeah. So what happened was so I definitely did um, end up in the hospital as, as the book talks about and as you alluded and and that sort of created space between me and and this girlfriend Lindsay and um, and then my roommates I had a couple guys I was living with and I would beg them hey can you please like she wanted to go out and do a lot of dancing I'm like please take her clubbing and eventually she met someone and normally you wouldn't celebrate that but I celebrated <laughs> and, and we broke up and it, it was a happy day uh, well, ladies and gentlemen and gender nonconformers, if you're listening, it's, it's, uh, I'm just telling you, a relationship can make or break you sometimes. So that's why self-awareness is so key. You have to really know yourself and know <laughs> what you can take and, and, and what's healthy for you. Because if you're not careful, it can lead down several destructive paths is what I'm hearing. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Now, part of your journey as an immigrant is not also, I mean, it's not, doesn't have a, doesn't always have to do with your job. You know, you have religion and you have love, right? And I've, I've yeah. noticed that you describe yourself as a Pakistani Muslim, but then it sounds like you found Christianity as well, um, which is interesting. Was that as a result of love or a woman you met or what? Tell me the story. So it started out that way. So yeah, when you grow up in a country like Pakistan, it's a predominantly Muslim country and my whole family was strong Shia Muslim and you never have any uh, desire or opportunity to explore any alternative truth in, or to believe something or to not believe something you're basically told this is this is the truth this is what you believe and I came into the states like many internationals from the Muslim countries with many stereotypes and then they got validated pretty fast because, you know, I thought, okay, everybody in America is a Christian because, you know, if your name is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's straight out of the Bible, why wouldn't you be Christian? You know, just like right. if you're born, you're born a Muslim, um, pretty much if you're, you know, so why wouldn't you be born a Christian? So I basically had many misconceptions about Christianity. And then in my early days, like this girlfriend I described, you know, she would go to a Bible study. I'm like, oh, wow, this is how this is how Christians are. Um, and I was wrong about some of my stereotypes. And then eventually I met this girl, Judy, who who was actually a practicing uh, Christian. And her talk matched her walk in terms of her integrity and how she handled herself and and so that relationship started to grow and I got to know her and her family and they all seemed to be very God-fearing and so that's when I started to learn more about true Christianity and then eventually I got a Bible in my hands and most Muslim countries actually don't speak Arabic which is what the their book is in and so I had never I've never I never read um, any kind of scripture in English, which I, which was really how I thought and spoke English fluently at that time. So I started to get exposed to Christ through that. And um, that relationship did form into love, but our, we broke up because she was so integrous 
that she was like, hey, I I have to move on because we don't, you know, you're a Muslim, I'm a Christian. And so I, we did break up and I had to search for the truth on my own mm. and just on my own to determine, okay, who is this person of Christ and is he the one I should follow? And I'm not saying that that was for me, that was what I was faced with. And and eventually I decided, yeah, I, I need to follow him, not realizing any consequences or what that really meant from an implication standpoint. And there were big implications uh, because, you know, growing up in my family in a Muslim country, religion and family and everything goes hand in hand. It's not separated like it is here. So when you're going to choose to follow a different path, you're turning your back on your family and your culture and your faith. And so it was very hard to go back home and t tell your parents about it and to tell them that you still love them. And I still love my Muslim family. I love Muslims. But for me, this was the truth that I needed, that I, I was faced with, that I needed to follow. And that's that was one of the hardest things I went through. But I did transform from one faith to other. Wow. Yeah. Um, I don't even know where to start with that. So I, Nigeria is a largely Christian and Muslim world. So I've always grown up, I, I grew up as, as a Christian, but I've always grown up with, you know, Muslim friends. Uh, so for me, I, I didn't have the um, negative stereotype that people have of Muslims. But sure. yeah, but coming into America, I remember after 9-11, I, I remember seeing how the attitude changed a little bit, especially for my Muslim friends. But I also am aware, especially being in diversity and inclusion, and I haven't lived in different countries, of how switching religion can really impact your dynamic with family. And you explaining what happened with your job, your personal life, your immigration status, and your family, it just it just sounds like you keep finding new lives to add to yourself because <laughs> you're having to go through so many transitions, more than the average person. And yes. it, yeah, and, and it's across all levels. It's not just financially or, you know, academically. It's also spiritually <laughs> and I, I imagine mentally. And there has to, I, I just, I just have to pick your brain on, on this. There has to be something that you've learned from living multiple lifetimes that you can, you know, pass on to the next generation of leaders who is trying to just figure out how to get through one or two days because, you know, a lot can happen. Yeah, and I, I, that's a very good question. Um, so I feel, Tyler, that from even a very young age, um, and the book talks about that, it, and, you know, I had sexual abuse I went through. My parents just, as wonderful people as they were, they just couldn't protect me and they weren't as savvy to the ways of the world. So from a very young age, I had to develop this thick skin and and deal with adversity. And we all deal with different adversities. I think my advice to your listeners is we're capable of so much more um, in terms of being able to endure things. So for me, I built adversity through that and it sort of allowed me to be more of an individual, uh, whereas a Muslim society is very collective. And then coming here, once again, there was a lot of adversity. You had to struggle through and find your way 
out of that adversity one day at a time. So I think we we need to be open to new cultures and new ways of thinking uh, and not and be willing to learn from the new cultures. That's what happened to me. It was like, okay, I'm going to remain open to this new way of thinking or this new culture. And I think transformation starts by being open to learning those new things. And I would say that in my case, you know, that was very important to be willing to adjust to the culture. A lot of times people just don't adjust or they'll come from another country to the United States and they'll stay uh, in that same uh, cocoon-like environment, right? I mean, same store, same food, same clothing. And, and I think they need to bring that diversity and bring that differentness to the surroundings instead of keeping it to themselves. And for me, I think that was a very important lesson to bring my whole self to work or to my relationships. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I always say people should practice being the minority every uh, on purpose uh, on a weekly basis. I think experiences matter. And the way you and I grew up, we didn't have a choice many times where we were the minority where we were. Even when we went back home, we were hidden immigrants. But right. I think... I think the the experience that we can both say is that that exposed us to different ways of thinking, allowed us to think more big picture, and allows us to see things from different perspectives. And so my argument is if people actually do that on purpose, where they find places where they, they are the minority, at least on a weekly basis, that exposes their mindset and opens their mind, the worldview rather. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. Same, same, same thing if they're building teams and you're going to have conflict, right? When you're at work, mm -hmm. it'd be the tendency would be to just, let's just work with everybody that's just like me. Yeah. Uh, but then that's not always the best result at the end. But so there's sometimes there's conflict, uh, but that's a healthy conflict that you just need to be willing to be open to. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're getting ready to close here, but I, I want to give you the chance to talk about what you describe as the invisible hand of capitalism and mm -hmm. how that and the rule of law can coexist beautifully. Sure. Um, so what I mean by that is that, you know, in, in, in America, I, I felt like uh, there is this good balance between letting the entrepreneur, you know, let them operate in, in without too much hindrance. So um, I guess my, I'm sort of showing my hand that my view is less regulation and to let business thrive. And, and in America, I saw that, you know, uh, the invisible hand is a reference to just Adam Smith and the economist and letting supply and demand allow uh, it to drive market forces, forces, let them drive business and growth. And in America, I saw there was a lot of opportunity for there, that, but there is a beautiful balance between that and the rule of law, because in many other countries that I experienced uh, in my 30-something years here, going back 17 nations I've traveled in, lived in multiple countries, if there isn't that rule of law protecting the little guy, and you come up with an idea and it's just stolen, or there's no justice, 
uh, or there is justice only for the rich or the elite, then the entrepreneurship gets suffocated. And so I found in America the freedom where there is rule of law that protects um, against certain discriminatory behavior to a degree. Uh, it's not perfect, but at the same time, you have this opportunity for market forces to coexist. And that's not available everywhere else. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that, that freedom to do that. So, okay, the reason why I even I, I brought that up and I was very, very interested in your opinion is because we do leave, uh, we do live in a time rather where people are really, this competing ideas, people are having a hard time finding agreement with these two concepts that you're, you're yes. talking about. And, and it's, it's, it's becoming pretty much as the time, as election comes about, it's becoming a really big topic of, <laughs> of discussion across generation and across businesses. You seem to think that it is possible. Others seem to think it is not impossible. It's not possible at all. And I'm just wondering what's the best way to communicate the idea of harmony to the right people so that, you know, people will be able to understand how that could work together. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been struggling with this myself, and I think one of the reasons I wrote the book was there was so much divisiveness and so much, so much polarization, right? And yeah, I think we, I feel that whether you're liberal or conservative or socialist or capitalist, I feel like there is more we have in common um, as residents and citizens and the values of this nation that are shared by both both perspectives those i feel like we have more in common than not and i think we need to embrace the those core values of viewing individuals as individuals mm. uh, and having th that we've been created with you know inalienable rights um and this is a great nation despite the, despite its problems if we focus on some of those core values i feel we should we can at least take a step towards each other right and yeah. and yeah. not always be focused on i think we're so worried that oh if we give in on um this or that view that you know we're sort of rejecting our entire um platform of perspective then you know we we got to find ways to work together somehow and I, this is we still have more in common than not in my opinion no, I, I share your optimism and I'm not going to give up until we get there. Uh, your book, which is amazing, uh, is, is, is something that's called the, I, I love the title. I'm not sure how you got it, but beyond the golden door, right? Um, it, it's, it's out now. What would you want the audience to gain from the book and where can they find it? Well, first of all, uh, I want to answer your question, where does this Beyond the Golden Door come from? So, you know, Beyond the Golden Door actually comes from the quote on the Statue of Liberty, where she's saying, you know, um, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning, breathe free. And she says, I lift my lamp beside the Golden Door. So Golden Door is the entryway to this nation. And it's a message to the immigrants welcoming them. Um, so that's where it came from. And what I want the readers to get out is really it's they are going to be talking. They're studying my story, but they're really going to appreciate the freedoms that we have. And in my journey, I'm hoping they're going to see 
themselves and where are they in their own journey. And we just celebrated July 4th, not that long ago. And that's wonderful that we celebrate the freedoms at one day. But what about the other 364 days? What can they do to preserve these freedoms that we have? So I want them to sort of a, recognize how amazing these freedoms are, especially if they're like a second, third generation American. And B, think about what they can do to preserve those freedoms. Not everybody can like join the military, you know, but what can they do? Maybe they can, uh, uh, maybe they have a bias they need to recognize that they they have and sort of unconscious bias and go, oh, you know, I need to maybe uh, think about that. Maybe give an assignment to somebody who they normally don't give an assignment to because they're that person's a minority, or maybe they're thinking about joining the fire department to volunteer. Whatever they can do, I want to inspire them to contribute to preserving the freedoms. Well, I love it. I love it. I can't think of a better way to to end the the interview. I'm going to make sure I put all the show notes, the uh, the links to the book in the show notes, and we'll make sure we have different ways to contact you. Um, I, I really, really enjoy the book, and I'm, I'm loving. Uh, everything that you're saying in terms of, of finding, you know, core values and also examining yourself so that you understand potential biases that you have. The last question that I ask my guests before we close is, is my mission statement reframed as a question. My mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. It's the foundation of this podcast and, and everything that I do. So how do you, Ali, use your difference to make a difference? Well, I do, first of all, by bringing my differences <laughs> and not hiding them. And this book has been a bold step to actually really lay it all out and and share my difference with the world. And it's been so far and been an amazing experience, Ayo, where people are embracing that because I had some fears and some trepidation. You know, how are how is my colleague who happens to be from the same country or same faith going to react? But they've been very open. So you make a difference by bringing your differences, your whole self, wherever you are, not pushing them in people's faces, but just bringing them naturally and also acknowledging that your differences are, other people have differences too and welcoming their differences. Well said. Thank you so much, Ali. I really, really appreciate you spending time. Uh, thank you for uh, you know the taking uh, you know the day out of your busy schedule to to talk to us and looking forward to sharing this episode. Well, thanks for having me, and I'm looking forward to reading your book. Oh, thank you. That means a lot to me. I really appreciate that. And ladies, gentlemen, and gender nonconformers, till next time. Use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.